So uh, we're continuing our sermon series, you guys. Uh, there's two more weeks left on extravagant, generous living, as we've been talking about stewardship. And you know, nobody, nobody leaves church on Sunday singing during this sermon series. You know what I mean? People are walking out going, I love you, Lord. People are walking out with a frown on their face, frankly. Um, and it's been quite enjoyable for me. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> this is a hard conversation, right? It's tough, man. And some of you guys, you know, if you wanted to, you'd come up to me and go, stop. Stop telling me what to do or stop being in my grill or whatever the, you know, phrase is. This is a hard conversation to have, but we said we've needed to have it. Secondly, it's also challenging in our church because do you realize, depending on where you're seated, on a typical Sunday, you might be seated next to somebody who makes easily six figures. But also on some Sunday, you're sitting next to someone who makes $20,000 a year. And they're having a hard time putting food on the table. That's who your church body is. So this sermon series for me is tough. By the way, it's exhausting pastoring a church like New Community. I just want to put that up there. Because <laughs> it's hard talking about money. Because I'm looking at it and I'm going, we have the entire spectrum. Socioeconomically. How do we talk about money in a way that it honors God, but also is raw, authentic, and honest, Right? So it's been hard. And yes, I have been picking intentionally on some of you who do well for yourself, who make more than the average. Because the reality is, as we've seen, it is imperative that to whom much is given, much is expected. And many of you that are in your 20s and 30s that are doing very well for yourself in your career, definitely better than the average person, it is so critical that you understand what God says about money and stewardship. Because your life makes an enormous impact in our world. Man. So today, as we continue our sermon series, um, we're going to talk about what generosity biblically is. Not what our culture says, not what your friends say. What radical, biblical radical generosity is. And we're going to be looking at a familiar passage. But, but before we do, here's how I want to intro it. Intro it. A, a seminal book for me was a book written by a guy named Ron Ballou, Ronald Ballou, who wrote a book called Master Your Money. And in this book, he says, here are five ways that typical Americans spend their money. So here we go. The five typical ways is people spend it. People repay debts and bills with it. We'll come back to in a moment. Uh, people pay their taxes. Hopefully you pay your taxes. Um, they save, invest, and then they give. Real quick, we need to talk about the second part. Can I just say this? There's nothing more, and I don't want to make anybody feel guilty, so I'm going to be very careful. There, there's nothing worse than amassing or accruing commercial debt because of careless spending. But it's rampant in our culture. Here, let me just show you some figures real quick. Here is the amount of dollars that the Americans, in this country last year had, in credit card debt. $935.6 billion. Credit card debt. Second slide. This number grew by a hundred billion since 2011. Next slide. On an average, American between 1865 has about four thousand seven hundred seventeen dollars of credit card debt. Average. Some of us in here have more. Some of us in here have less. Now the problem, of course, is what they call the revolving debt. Right. The problem, of course, is that. Folks that could pay off their credit card debt at the end of the month, you're kind of useless for credit card companies. Who they're banking on are folks who can't, and so they pay interest and pay the minimum payment. Let me show you a slide. Next slide, please. The average credit card payment is 15%. Interest is 15%. Next slide, please. That means that if you owe $4,717 and you pay the minimum payment, it takes you 10 years, 10 years to pay $4,717. Now, Real quick, some of you are math geniuses. That means that when you finally pay that credit card debt off, do you know how much you wind up actually paying? Here's the actual number. $22,869. That means on something that you ate like two years ago, 
something that you wore out five years ago, something that you can't even find, like where did that thing go? That thing that you're still paying for, you wind up paying $18,155 more. And by the way, the research says that one of the reasons why there's so much debt is because of the easy accessibility. Now, there's a bunch of other slides I want to get to, but here's the reason I want to say this. Credit card debt is like throwing away money. Now, I want to be gentle and yet firm. It's just money that God entrusts us with to be stewards over. If you are sitting here right now and you have credit card debt that you are just paying minimum payment or interest, if you are sitting here and you don't know how to budget, if you are sitting here and financially you know you're terrible, we as a church want to be able to disciple you to be better stewards. And one of the ways we're going to do that is by offering this class called, does anybody know? We're offering a class this fall called Financial Peace University where we are going to teach folks how to budget, teach folks how to get rid of credit card debt, teach folks how to be better stewards. If you are sitting here today and you are saying, that's me, I need help, we need you to attend this class. We'll offer it two, three times a year. It's biblically based. We need you to attend this class. Okay? Now, here's the other thing about that list. You ready? That list is the order in which typical Americans spend their money. So, we spend it. We pay debt and tax, debt and bills. We pay taxes. We save and invest. And then we give. That's the order in which vast majority of Americans spend their money. In other words, next slide please. The order of priority for us goes like this. Me, me, America, me, and then others in God. Okay? That's how we typical Americans, it's me, me, America, me, and then maybe God and others. This is how typical Americans spend their money. Now, why do we do this? We've been talking about this hard issue because fundamentally at the end of the day, we don't think of ourselves as stewards. We think of ourselves as owners. We think of ourselves as owners, which means that we look at our money and we go like this. I worked for it. I earned it. I'm going to spend it the way I want to. Nobody tells me when, where, how, and how much. It's up to me. And our culture just reinforces that. And so our attitude is, if I don't spend it all, if I don't pay it all, if I don't save it all, if I don't give to the government all, whatever is left, leftovers, God hears you and others. Is there any reason why typical Americans give less than 2% to charity and other organizations? Is this you? Is this me? We don't have time to go talk, because I've been talking about this for three weeks, of why we're stewards and not owners. And if you don't understand that or don't get it, you need to look at the other sermons and get that, because that's the foundation. Not today. I need to move, because we need to then begin to talk about, I only have two Sundays to talk about this, what is practically radical biblical generosity look like, right? And today we're going to look at a letter that a guy named Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. Church in Corinth, and by the way, we're going to spend the next two Sundays in the book of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, in case you're one of those people that you want to meditate early on and find what, what God might have to say. Uh, 2 Corinthians, these two letters are written to the church in Corinth, and in the particular context we're going to talk about, Paul is collecting offering or funds to help out a church in Jerusalem that's struggling because of famine. So he's going around Asia Minor, other churches, and he's collecting money to help out this church, right? And he writes this letter. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this portion. Usually, sometimes I go verse by verse. I'm going to read the entire section because I want you to pay attention to his rationale and reasoning as he challenges a group of Christians in a church about what it means to give radically. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. It's about 14, 15 verses, a bit long, so 
Hang in there and pay attention. Now we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty, listen to this, welled up in rich generosity. I'll come back to that. It's incredible. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Verse 5. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made, me, uh, made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Now, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice how many times, by the way, Paul hasn't even mentioned the word money yet. He's mentioned the word grace or the gospel six times. Which is why I preach the way I do for the last three Sundays. He just constantly goes, think about grace. Think about his grace. Think about the cross. Think about... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. Man, it's pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable what Paul has to say. Today's one of those Sundays that's going to hurt. If it doesn't hurt, I didn't do my job. So here's what radical generosity looks like. First, radical generosity springs from joy. Everybody say joy. This is very, very important. The Macedonians didn't feel joyful because they gave. They gave because they were already joyful. Macedonians did not give. Check this out. In order for them to feel good. But they gave because they were already joyful. It feels really, really good to be generous. Can I get an amen? It does. But it's also dangerous to give because it makes you feel good. It's dangerous to give because it makes you feel good. A couple of reasons real quick we see in this text. Number one, Paul says here, he says, out of the most severe trial, they're overflowing joy. Let me ask you something. How many of us would be joyful if we were in their shoes and were going through extreme trial? Answer? Very few of us. And yet what we see about the Macedonians is that in circumstances that would crush many of us, they are still experiencing joy, joy that overflows to radical generosity. Why? Simple. Their joy is established and founded in God, in the experience of His grace, not in their circumstances. We spent the entire spring talking about what it means to walk according to the Spirit. And when we walk according to the Spirit, we saw how one of the fruit, not fruits, fruit is what? Joy. What is joy? Joy is simple. It's delight in who God is in himself rather than what he does or gives us. That's joy. That is biblical joy. When we walk according to the flesh, we say, I serve God because he's useful. When you walk according to the spirit, you say, I serve God because he's beautiful. There is a chasm of difference between saying, I serve him because he's useful. In the flesh, I serve him because he's beautiful. 
That's why joy, biblical joy, is not, hello anybody, environmentally sensitive. And it endures the chaos of life. Is that you? Is that me this morning? Is that us? See, it's one thing to experience joy when things are going well. It is supernatural to experience joy when the bottom falls out. It's one thing for us to experience peace when there's money in the bank. It's another thing to experience peace when you lose your job. Joy is not environmentally sensitive. Which is what prompts the Macedonians to be able to give. Biblical joy, church, is always in spite of something. That's why biblical joy is compatible with pain. Biblical joy doesn't diminish, doesn't ignore, doesn't, doesn't, isn't in denial about the harshness and sadness and difficulties of life. You don't have to. Why? Because your joy is not found in circumstances. It's found in God who never changes. You hear me? That's why I work on your heart. Biblical generosity can only arise out of joy that says, it's not about my circumstances. Secondly, the reason why this is dangerous, according to Jesus. So let me, let me take you. Well, why it's dangerous to give because it makes you feel good. Verse, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. I'm going to do this, by the way. I'm going to bring in other passages because there's so much about money in the Bible, as we talked about. Jesus is doing one of his more extensive teaching on money. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly. Now, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't say, don't do your good deeds publicly. He goes on, he says, to be admired by others. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of generosity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will get. This is so sobering for me. Because what Jesus is saying is, when you give so that people will go, wow, you're so generous. Jesus goes, that is your reward right there. They're wow. I said, congratulations. Then he goes on though. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. See what he's saying here? He said, don't just go around telling other people that you generous because it makes you feel good. He says, don't even tell yourself. Meaning, don't do it because it makes you look good to others and you feel good about yourself. So subtle temptation to give generously so that we could look good or feel good about ourselves is so powerful. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that struggles with this? The temptations, the temptation to give and be internally proud of it like, hmm, is so powerful. It's so powerful. The way that you know that this approval idol is what I call it is in effect powerfully is you're generous but let me tell you you're incredibly manipulative of the people you give to. You're very sensitive and get easily irritated when they don't respond to you like the way you want them to. Is this you? Is this me? Giving is not a way of showing people how much we can do for God. It's illustrating how much God has done for us. Amen? God doesn't care about your amount. I'm just going to say something that's going to be shocking to some of you. If God wanted all your money, he'd take it. IRS could take it. You think God can't take your money? Come on. Come on. It's not about, here's how much I'm doing for God. It's about how much God has done for and in us. Ask yourself, why are you giving? Why are you giving? Because you've experienced grace and it's overflowing in joy. Generosity? Or because you need that affirmation? Because you need that approval? 
Did I ever tell you guys about that one time when a guy came into my office and wanted to write a check for $40,000 and I said, no, take it back? Yeah, that's the whole story. Um, <laughs> no. I was in my office one day, investment banker guy came, came in. It was a severe, real intense counseling session. And as the counseling session is ending, he goes, you know, Pastor Peter, I want to write a check for $40,000. I got a bonus. I want to give it to the church. I literally said to him, I said, keep it. And he said, why? I said, because you're giving for the wrong reason. God's not going to be honored by that. And our church will be okay. Why do you give? It, see, it's pretty frightening for me to stand up here and do this, Right? As we're pushing you to give. But I'm totally serious. If you do not give for the right reasons and motivation. Please don't. Okay. Next point. (laughs) What's that? I love you too dear. Secondly. Radical generosity. Is about the level of sacrifice. It's about the level of. What do I mean? Verse 3 says, Macedonians gave as much as they were able and even beyond their abilities. Listen very carefully, please. This does not mean that they gave more than what they had. This isn't talking about people giving and then putting themselves into debt for giving because they don't. What it means is, listen very carefully, it means that what they gave actually hurt. What they gave actually hurt. One of the most convicting passages in all the New Testament about generosity is Galatians 6.2 where Paul says this. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ, church? Love. 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 Why St. Page love? He's saying this is what it means to Love. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on generosity. And in the sermon, he anticipates people who say this. I can't, I'd love to give, but I can't because, he uses this word, I can't afford to give right now. And then he says this. Quote. If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves... Then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? And he's saying when we say, I can't afford to give right now, he's literally saying it's essentially because what we're saying is, I don't want to be burdened in this act of giving. And can we be really, really honest, not all of us, for some of us this morning. When we say, I don't want to be burdened, what we're saying is this, I don't want this giving to impact my lifestyle. I don't want this giving to make me sacrifice some things that I want to do. Not all of us, but for some of us, I don't want to. Because the reality is this. If we would just, and I said this two weeks ago, if we would just lower our lifestyle a little bit, or put a clamp on our lifestyle as our income increases, we would have so much more to give. But what we do is, we let our lifestyle continue to increase as our income increases. And so what we do is this, I'm accustomed to a certain way of living and I don't want to sacrifice this, therefore I cannot give. By the way, do you realize we live in a culture where we could increase our lifestyle by a signature? It's scary. (laughs) Boom. Can I ask you something? Can I ask myself something? Are we giving to an extent in which we're saying, this is going to hurt? What do I mean? This is going to cause me to sacrifice some things. Now, let me be very, very clear. There are some people in our church for whom giving 2 3% of their income away, it literally means they go without things that you and I consider basic. I know this for a fact because I'm their pastor. There are people in this church who they work their tails off, two, three jobs, they have a hard time just putting food on the table. And for them, just giving a percentage of income is enormous sacrifice. It hurts. And by the way, every statistic out there says that the more money you make, the less you give. Do you know this? And we'll talk about that in a little bit why. 
And the less you make, the more generous people are. Then, then there's some of us, I'm just going to be, the, we're tithing and we're so proud of it. And the reality is we could give 20, 30% of our income away and it wouldn't affect where we eat, where we live, and how we travel. It wouldn't. We would have to give way more than the tithe before it hurt and caused us to sacrifice our lives. Do you want to hear this today? I won't be offended if you walk out, by the way. Because here's the thing. If you and I are serious about living biblically, we don't compare ourselves to people in our other cultures or people around us and go, I think I'm doing okay. We measure ourselves against what Scripture says. And Scripture says, if your giving doesn't hurt and you're doing all that you still want to do, we're not giving proportionally. There's no cross in our economic life. How are we doing? How are we doing? And I'm going to say this later on, but I'm just telling you right now. I said this two Sundays, and I'm going to say, continue to say it. I don't expect, nor do I want you to give all of your money to our church. I don't even believe that's even biblical. I'm going to continue to say it. I'm going to take a, I want you to take a portion of your income and give to our church, but that's not even biblical. Go, you have to give all to the church. I don't even believe that. But the reality is, the people that are giving 2-3% in our church, theirs would be more than made up if some of you just said, you know what, I'm going to give until it hurts. And I've been tithing since I was five years old. And I think I need to increase it. And give to that cause, give to that cause, give to this cause. And can I just say something, please? I I don't want to really offend anybody, but I'm going to. Can can, Can we be a church that doesn't say stuff like, you know, I just have expensive taste. Can we just be that church that doesn't say stuff like, you know, I just like the finer things in life. We sound dumb when we say that. We do. We really do. We really do. Nobody in this room came out of the mother's womb going, I like finer things in life. (laughs) It's learned behavior and it can be unlearned. Please, let's be the church. One other thing real quick. And I, and I said this a couple of weeks ago and some of you frowned at me like, oh. Look, does this mean that there aren't Christians here who live in wealthier neighborhoods and move in circles and make similar income? And the answer is absolutely not. It's unbiblical to say everybody's out of, you know, embrace voluntary poverty and go live somewhere. Like, where do you even see that? And please don't go, but look at Jesus. Come on, come on, come on. Don't come up here and debate me theologically on that, okay? Oh, that's not... We need Christians in every social class, every neighborhood, every sphere. Do you hear me? We need Esthers in the king's court. We need Josephs as a prime minister. We need Daniels to interact with politicians. But what this means biblically is this, that if you're in a certain income bracket, you choose to live at the bottom end of your income bracket with how much money you spend on yourself. If you want to stand out in this culture like a sore thumb, if you want to be looked upon as a weirdo, try doing this. Let there be a great distance between what you could do in terms of how you live because you have the means to, but what you actually choose to do. The points are only going to get tougher, church. So that's point number two out of nine, okay? So here's point number. I'm just kidding. And not nine points. I'm just kidding. Point number three, radical generosity authenticates the work of the Holy Spirit. I got, my God. Radical generosity authenticates the work of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean? You need to understand the context of the letters. He's writing to a church where we have some of the most rich material on spiritual gifts, okay? Some of the most rich material on spiritual gifts is found in the letters of First and Second Corinthians. So this was a church that was excelling in spiritual gifts. That's kind of what he gets to in verses 7 and 8. But you notice what he says? He says, just as you excel in these gifts of knowledge and in faith, so on and so forth, he says, excel in the grace of giving. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in your life, the inevitable result will be radical generosity. This 
is seen in the early church. Let me just show you something. And I can only look at one passage. There's this pattern repeated over and over again. They're filled with the Spirit, and then certain things happen. Watch what happens. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God boldly. Another sermon, but I need to say this. An automatic result of being filled with the Spirit is someone who is boldly, courageously talking about Jesus. You can't not talk about Jesus while being filled with the Spirit. Another sermon. No one claimed that any other, all the believers were referred to were one in heart and mind. Another result of being filled with the Spirit? Unity. Church unity. Church unity. Bold proclamation. Church unity. Filled with the Spirit. Keep going. One in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to hear this again, testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. You find this pattern. You can't get away from it. Filled with the Spirit, testifying, testifying about Jesus, oneness in spirit in church, and generosity. 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 You question why? 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 What is it about being filled with the Spirit that leads to generosity? Jesus told us why. Do you remember in John 16? He's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I love these verses. Look at what Jesus says. When the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14. He will glorify me. I love that. It's my favorite song, by the way. Glorify. Say to CC, can you sing that every Sunday? I can sing that every Sunday. <laughs> the Holy Spirit will glorify me. Glorify is a simple word. Big, big, heavy, beautiful. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Remember, we spent tons of time a year ago talking about the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the Holy Spirit's primary ministry is? He comes to the believer and he goes, hey, 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 hey. Look at Jesus. Isn't he beautiful? Holy Spirit's ministers come to you and go, look how beautiful he is. Look how amazing he is. Look how glorious he is. And to make tangible and real the work and person of Jesus. And I tell you this right now. It is impossible for someone to encounter Jesus like that and not be generous. Do you know why? Because what it means to be converted is that you find Jesus to be the most beautiful, lasting reality in the universe. Can I get an Amen. What it means to be converted is that you find Jesus to be the most beautiful, lasting reality in the universe. Which means you don't have to spend tons of money to add beauty and significance like we do to our lives. You find beauty and significance in Jesus. He becomes that real and beautiful to you. And you go, I don't need to spend all this money adding this. I have it in Jesus. Martin Luther said, a Christian is someone who gets up every morning and says, I have wealth beyond this world. Are you kidding me? He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. He took everything I deserved, and I get everything he deserved. I am wealthy. I am God's treasured possession for crying out loud. God, if you are stingy with money, if you are afraid to be generous, something else besides Jesus is your treasure. That's the issue. That is the issue. Something else besides Jesus is your treasure. Having filled with the Spirit also does what? It gives you deep assurance. Why? Because you realize my security is in Him and not in my bank account. I trust him with tomorrow's needs, not my ability. I trust him to take care of me and not my own competency. Can I get a name? Yeah. 
And when that assurance comes via the Holy Spirit, you go, I'm secure. I am a child of the living king. I, well, I'm going to rule and reign with him for all of eternity. His holy power is at work in my life. And one day, my sins, my flaws, my weaknesses, and my sads, sadness will be overcome. And death, why would I be afraid of death? One day, he's going to resurrect me. What are you afraid of? What would I be afraid of? And the Spirit comes. And God's goodness and love becomes a reality. And you find your significance, beauty, and security in him. I guarantee you, you're going to be like, where do I live? It authenticates the work of the... Can I ask you something? Can I ask you something? Can I ask... Is this you? Is this me? Fourth, radical generosity makes God's love tangible. When Paul says, I want to test the sincerity of your, of your love. Sincerity, that word literally means the truthfulness of your love or the reality of your love. I'm just going to... I'm going to confess me. Okay, I'm, I don't know about anyone else. One of the reasons why I'm not more generous is because I don't have the kind of compassion and sensitivity to the needs around me that I should. I'm just going to be real. That's me. I don't know about you. But for me, one of the reasons that keeps me from generous, and I, sometimes I don't even know, I don't even want to know about the needs. I, I don't even, I don't want to know. I turn a blind eye and my heart is hardened to the sensitivity. But here's the tough biblical truth, right? The Bible says the validity of your love without action is nonsense. Love without tangible action is nonsense. And this is not just isolated. It's found at Matthew 25, sheep and the goats. Whatever you did for the least of these, you do unto me. James chapter 2, when he says, what good is it if you say to somebody, go, good luck, well fed, and yet you don't do anything, there's a verse, to tangibly meet their needs. The sincerity of our love, the sincerity of our love, devoid of action. Now here's a historical fact. The historical fact is this, the early church would not have gone off the ground and exploded like it did without the way they lived their lives with their wealth and possessions. One of the defining mark of the early church Christians was a quote by a Roman emperor, third century, Julian, who wanted to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. This is what he said in one of his letters to his friends. There, Christians, success lies in their charity to all. They take care of not only their own poor, but ours as well. Their radical generosity gave them credibility in a world that looked at them as being strange. Their radical generosity gave them credibility that what they said about Christ's love was actually authenticated. I'm just going to say this and I'm going to move on. Church, maybe the... Maybe the lack of witness in our country among Christians is directly related to the fact that we are just as materialistic, just as greedy as our non-Christian neighbors. I'm I'm just going to say this out. And I'm going to move on. I'm going to drop a bomb and I'm going to move on. The Bible talks 10, 20 times more about greed and materialism than it does about sex. And yet Christians in this country are obsessed with the issue of sex while greed and materialism in the lives of Christians never get challenged. What is wrong with that picture? What is wrong with that picture? Maybe we will gain credibility in our culture when we begin to live our lives with materialism and money in a way that's faithful to what scripture says. They may not believe what you say, but they will always believe what you do. Next, by the way, just real quick. It's really hard to dislike somebody who's generous with you. (laughs) Try hating somebody who gives you the shirt off their back and says, I'm going to share. Come on, church, we got to do better. 
Fifth, radical generosity can't be commanded. (laughs) To which you're sitting going, why am I listening to your sermon then? (laughs) You guys know this. Listen, I'm one of those pastors. People go, can I disagree with you? Of course you could disagree with me. Can I challenge you? Of course you could. As long as you do it respectfully. Of course you could challenge me. Listen. The reason why this is important is because the Bible doesn't say, do it. Paul doesn't go around and saying, do it, because I'm an apostle. What does he do? He says, do you have the desire? Do you have the willingness? Do you have the desire? Do you have the willingness? Because he knows that if you obey just to obey, it's not obedience. If it's a demand, and you solely look at it as a demand, and it's not driven out of willingness and love, then God says, God says it's a demand, but it can't be the response to a demand. It's a requirement to love, but it can't be, it can't be the response to a requirement. I know that's totally confusing. It makes sense to me. God demands generosity that can't be the result of solely a demand. What does the scripture say about radical generosity? Here's what Paul says. We're going to pick up this verse next week. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And we're going to talk about this in like a couple minutes. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Say the following verses with me, church. Ready? We're going to all say it together twice. Here we go. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. One more time. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. That word cheerfully literally is the Greek word hilarious. Hilarious. From which we get the English word what? Hilarious. It's a picture of someone who's going, ha, 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 That's what I picture. Here you go. Here's how you know if you're not giving cheerfully or willingly. Three ways. One, so Peter, I want to give, but uh, is it before taxes or after? <laughs> is it net income or is it gross income? Um, can you show me where it says 10%? Because I kind of want to do it, but you know, did Jesus say that to us? Is that you? Is that me? Honestly, I feel like when we do that, God goes, keep it, keep it, keep it. Second way, and whether you're giving cheerfully, do you remember the scene in Ghost? <laughs> oh my gosh, I just realized I dated myself. Do you know who Patrick Swayze was? Do you know who Whoopi Goldberg is before The View? Like when she was an actor, you know. Did... Okay, so like a third of us that are like 40 years and old. Do you remember that movie, The Ghost? Do you remember when Whoopi Goldberg gets that check from Patrick Swayze? It's for like $4 million and Patrick Swayze is a ghost. And he goes, give it to her, give it to her. And Whoopi Goldberg is holding one check and the nun has the other check. And Whoopi Goldberg's like, no, no, no. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was hilarious. Anyway. Uh, Imagine someone playing tug of war with God. God's got one hand, you're on the other hand, you're going, oh, I don't, I, I have to, no, no, no. and I feel honestly God goes, keep it. Why? Your heart matters more. Third way, and this is the toughest, you ready? It's not enough just to write a check and go, here, many of us can write a check and go, do you know what it means to give cheerfully? Check this out. You volunteer in the ministries you give to. You serve in the ministries you give to. You pray for the missionaries you give to. So many of us write a check, whatever organization people, and we don't think twice. What it means to give cheerfully is that you put your heart, your soul, and your mind behind it. You volunteer, you pray for them, and you serve when opportunities arise. That's what it means to give cheerfully. Lastly, radical generosity is systematic and thoughtful. 
Again, we're going to come back to this passage next week. But in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, here's what Paul says. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection has to be made. Here's what I picture. Paul goes up there, right? And he, Paul, is Paul, for crying out loud, preached a powerful sermon. And people are moved. And Paul goes, let's collect money. And people are going, dang, that was such a good sermon. And Paul's going, if, by the, I, I have breath mints in my pocket. That's what this is. Okay, in case you're wondering. Paul's going, don't do that. You know why? You know why? What does it say about attitude? If we spontaneous and impulsively go, ah, I think I need, what does that say? What does that say? So practically, I'm going to practical. One, give to God first is what Paul's saying. Set aside a time, pre-decide. Sit down with your spouse, sit down with your family, not with the calculator, with the cross. Pre-decide. What is it that we want to do? And I said this two weeks ago, 10, 10, 80. 10% to God, 10% save, and 80% live on the rest. You could do that. You could follow some others. But whatever the percentage is, set it aside. First check. Does anybody write checks these days? If you do, write that check, put it in your Bible, and bring it. If it's cash, put it where the cash is, put it in your envelope, and set it aside. Some of us sign up on eGive. I was talking to Nate the other day. I talked to like two other people. They're like, I sometimes forget. To which I want to go, how can you forget? They're like, I forget. We all forget. And he says, I just signed up. And by the way, we do this with other things, right? Those of us that are artists, we don't just, you know, kind of willy-willy when I feel like it. You don't go to comment. I'm just not a once-a-month kind of person, you know, when I feel You don't do that. We don't do that with anything. Why do we do that with God? Why do we do that with God? When you set it aside, it's saying, this is a priority. God, I'm giving you priority above all things, and our actions match our words. I am setting it aside before anything else, your priorities, your kingdom agenda before me. Here it is. In Old Testament, it was the first fruits, agriculture, first fruits. Why was first fruits significant? Because the first fruits were some of the best crop, and you could be sold for a much higher price. And God goes, take your best. Take your best. Otherwise, you know what we wind up doing? You know what Jenny and I ate two nights ago? We eat leftovers. We eat leftovers. We eat leftovers. What's that? Oh, no. No, here's the reason why I say that. We all eat leftovers. You know, put it in the Tupperware and all that. Do you know why I say that? Because if I was to invite an important guest to our home, and he came into my house, and I opened the refrigerator and said, Hey, anything you want. Do you do that? I do that with my closest friends and family. Why do we do that with God? Why do we give him leftovers? After I've eaten, after I've played, after I've shopped, after I've done this, after I've done that, after, oh, this is what's left over. You could say all you want. You're a priority. God goes, I'm not. As I mentioned, tithing is a good starting point, but I'm really challenging some of us, not all of us in here. But please don't stop at the tithe. Come on, you guys. I shared this with you guys two weeks ago. I've been tithing since I was like three years old, okay? And some of, some of us just need to grow up. I'm sorry, I just need to, some of us just need to grow up. We're so enamored, we're so enamored with the numbers, you know, 10%. And I said last week, if you're moving up and you've got earning potential, you know, and move up, make it this one right now. Highs because when it's ten dollars out of hundred, it's easy. A hundred dollars out of a thousand, a little harder. A thousand dollars out of ten thousand, oh. Ten thousand, God, you want some leftovers? Do it now. Be committed to it. Do you know what you can give to? When I say give to God first, put this slide up here, please. This is what we find in the entirety of Scripture. Here's some causes. God says, give to the worship, witness, and nurture of the people of God. So it is absolutely biblical to support your local church. Can I get an amen? Okay, that wasn't loud enough. Can I get an amen? It's absolutely, come on. If this is your church home and it's where we're nurturing you spiritually, give to this church. No, not all 10%. Give to other causes like the poor individuals with needs. But how can you possibly come here and this is your church family and go, I'm going to support everything else but here. Support this church family. It's biblical. Then give to other causes. 
And after you give into God for a secondly, save. 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 I'm not a money manager, but it just seems smart to me that if you don't save, you're going to continue to spend and your life is going to continue to increase. That's why somebody wrote a book a few years ago called Getting By on $100,000 a Year. Oh, 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 before you go, who, who would do, who would do? Let's be very careful. Infallible human rule. Spending begets spending. Save. Third, pay your taxes. If you sit there and go, why? We have a problem. Okay, we got to move on. That's another sermon for another time. Fourth, get rid of consumer debt. We just flip the script from what we said earlier, okay? And again, Financial Peace University. I want to encourage many of us, many of us. And lastly, then live on the rest. (laughs) See, I felt silly going, I want to say, you can do this. But then I'm like, that is so silly. Why do I need to tell many, not all, many Americans here who are doing pretty well for themselves that you could live on 80%? Good, good Lord. The rest of the world knows better. Because for some of us, if you're making a $50,000 a year, just taking, and you live on 80%, do you realize that you're like in the 97th percentile of the world's income? But we go, I, I don't, I don't know if I can live on that. Good Lord, guys, come on. Track your spending. None of us in here should go, I don't know where all the money went. (laughs) First of all, your credit card tells you these days, right, company? They tell you. Secondly, I've heard some of us who just work with cash, they actually designate envelopes, system. They have envelope for recreation, Envelope for eating out, envelope for whatever. And literally, there's some people in our church who take the entire thing they're going to live on, 80%, and they divide it into envelopes. And they go, this is what I'm going to live on. And it's actually worked for quite a bit of people. What do you need to do? What do I need to do, guys? To say, I'm going to live on this so that I could honor God with what he has entrusted to me. What does it mean for you and I to choose a percentage that we want to live on and stick with it? I'm not talking to my 11-year-old son, Parker, <laughs> who I didn't know, but was social studies. This is unprompted. I go, Parker, you know I'm talking about money and stewardship. He's learning in children. And he goes, Dad, you know what I learned? I said, what? He goes, you don't spend more than you make. An 11-year-old child, wisdom. You don't spend more than you make. But if you do not set the amount that you want to live on, you will spend 100% and then some. Lastly, please be a member of a radically changed community. You cannot escape what Paul ends this section with when he says, right now, your plenty will take care of them. And then at some point, when you're in need, their plenty will take care of you. What a beautiful picture when he says, you're such a tightly knitted community, radical kingdom community, that when you're in need, they take care of you. When they're in need. Do you know that Jesus talked about this, by the way? In the most famous passage you and I think of when we think about giving to kingdom work. You don't catch it because there's one word in there. Luke chapter 12, verse 31. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. And then verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Problem is, we read this individually. In other words, we go, give to God and seek his kingdom first and God will take care of you. And we think, I'm going to win the lottery. <laughs> we think, I'm going to get that mail in the check. By the way, this happens to a lot of people all the time. God supernaturally does this. But the powerful truth in this is this. He says, don't be afraid, little flock. He's not talking to individuals. He's talking to what? A community. 
And he's saying, here's what radical kingdom community looks like. You ready? He says, seek first his kingdom. Why? When you do when you're in need, God may send you a check in the mail. God may have your parents give you something you didn't support. You didn't God may give you a job. But here's the other way in which you could be sure that you could give generously. You're part of a kingdom community in which, number one, the gospel is so humble, that community, that needy people are not too proud to ask for help. The gospel has so humbled us, we are not too proud to ask for help when we're in need. Secondly, the gospel has so transformed them that money is not security, significance. Money is not any of those things. And they have been freed from the enslaving power of money. And they go, how can I give? Who's in need? Who's in need? How can I give? Can I tell you how in 14 years, you don't even know, people who needed rent were taken care of for six months. People who needed groceries were taken care of for eight months. Do you know how powerful this community can be when we get this? I have never met anybody in my entire life who became poor because they gave to God's kingdom first. I have met plenty of people who struggle financially because they said, I got this. This is mine. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, test me, except one place. When he says what? Malachi 3. Test me in this and give to my kingdom work. I don't know. If I were you, I'd take him up on that. I'd go, okay. Matt Talby. CC? Yeah. Matt Talby, come on up. You're going, why are you asking Matt Talby to come on up? Because I asked this dude. Actually, you might not want to share after that sermon, but I'm going to have you share anyway. Matt Tavi, I love talking to folks in our church about ways in which God has challenged and is challenging them financially and the reason why they live the way they live. And I asked Matt, because as I've gotten to know him better, he had a pretty powerful story and testimony. So, Matt, floor is yours. I thought we were going to do a question answer thing. It's okay. Um, so, so yeah, uh, this, you know, talking about money, just for me, it's not natural. It's not easy. So, um, just bear with me as I pour something out that I consider pretty personal. Um, but uh, you know, in the spirit of this, the stewardship challenge and things like that, I think it is important to share about money and be open about those things. So, the, you know, my story really, I'd say it started more in college. I went to Trinity uh, up north, and, um, you know, all my life I just grew up knowing about tithing, and, you know, that's what I would do. And there was a particular week in which uh, there was a speaker there for the whole week, and he challenged our thinking about what the Bible talks about with generosity. And taking the Bible literally in, in, in many instances. Uh, and he referenced a passage in Luke uh, where John the Baptist um, is calling people out for getting baptized because it's cool to get baptized so they're coming. And he's like, well, you know, you, your fruits need to be showing. And they say, well, you know, what are we, what are we supposed to do? He says, well, if you have two coats, give one away. If you have food, do the same thing. And um, that's, that's where the Holy Spirit challenged my life on giving. And I started thinking about, well, you know, what does it mean to give the way God wants me to give? And at that time, I was a college student, working part-time, not really making much money. And I remember a close friend of mine, uh, we were talking about it, and I was trying to think through you know, what, what does this mean? I want to, but I'm not really making any money, so, like, I'm not going to make a big impact. And, uh, and my friend said, well, you know, think about it. If you give a percentage now that, you know, maybe is higher than what you're doing, it might seem like a little bit, but think about once you're making a whole lot more money mm. and you're mm. working full-time and, you know, have a career, how doing it now is going to make it easier for then. And really that's when I started just thinking differently and, you know, I felt the, the, 
the Spirit telling me to give 20%. So that's what I started doing in college, and it's just kind of carried over into my career and, you know, started making uh, more money, and it's just been one of these natural things that uh, has made me a more cheerful giver because I don't view that money that I set aside as my money, you know, I view it as, well, how do I get to distribute this the way God wants me to mm. distribute it? And it's kind of fun mm. sometimes to be able to do that. So, um, and it's really freed me from that, you know, tug of war that you were talking about of, ah, I don't, this, I don't really want to, this is kind of mine, I earned it, um, you know, and so that's a little bit about my journey and, and where I am now and, uh, and, I will be sharing a little bit more at the town hall, too, with my wife. So, um, so yeah, that's my journey. Give it on. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Church, let's pray together. See, I... As your pastor know that there's nothing that I can say. No amount of words, no amount of fancy schmancy articulation of scripture. See, I know better than that. It has to be the powerful and gentle prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life. I've said this refrain over and over again. Don't rush out of here. Sit down with your calculator checkbook. Sit down with the cross. Sit down with the cross. And hear the voice of the Holy Spirit come and saying, Isn't he glorious? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he amazing? Isn't what he has done? He was rich. He became poor for your sake so that you through his poverty might become rich. Isn't that glorious? Sit with that. Allow God to speak to you, child of God. In a moment, I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in one of these songs, one of these hymns that for me is so special because it gets to that powerful gospel truth. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich in church. I'll tell you what, that is good.
Father, this morning, will you especially remember those in our church body who are struggling financially, who are without jobs, in between jobs, in temporary job situations, uncertain about their future, uncertain about even tomorrow. May the gospel and the cross of Christ and this kingdom community be a reminder to them that as they seek first you, that they will be taken care of. May that deep assurance, Holy Spirit, be powerfully manifest in them. And those of us, as we prepare to give, as we've been playing tug of war, giving without joy, refusing to be generous, may your Holy Spirit powerfully remind us of who you are, what you have done. In church, as we prepare to give, after you've given, I want to encourage you to stand from where you are. Declare this hymn as a testimony, as our witness. Use these gifts for your kingdom purposes, our Father in heaven. be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Ushers, please come forward. Church, let's give.